how many clients are not getting serviced because your experienced advisors are struggling to get to them? I'll bet the majority of you listening to this podcast right now are saying too many. That's why we invited Tiffany Markarian, Managing Director and Founder of Advantage Marketing, to join us on the Leadership Journey podcast. She's a multi-award-winning marketing strategist with 29 years of helping advisors and firms identify and capture opportunities during heightened competition and economic volatility. Tiffany is going to share specific strategies for sales managers, GAs, managing partners, and leaders of sales to empower plus guide your experienced advisors to scale their practices so no clients are left abandoned. Welcome, Tiffany, and congratulations for landing the cover of Financial Services Review Magazine this month as oh, a top you. marketing strategist in our industry. I'm popping the bubbly and releasing the <laughs> confetti. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. It's so good to see you and so good to be here to impart some knowledge and some understanding for your leaders to really help your experienced advisors. All right. So let's start with the why and the what of scaling for experienced advisors. How is it different from a traditional growth approach? That's the question to ask because so many leaders use growth-based messages. Frankly, that's how we're recruiting experienced advisors, we'll help you grow your business. Yes. But when we're talking about experienced advisors and we're, look, you could be two years in the business and be experienced. We're talking about those advisors that have a clientele or a book of business that they're now managing while they're trying to also improve, take on new strategies and, and sure, grow at the same time. But when we talk about scale, it's a very different conversation. Many of us would like to see our experienced advisors grow and it's business planning time. So we'll say, what do you think you're going to do next year? Well, you know, I'd like to grow by five, 10%. Well, I think you can do 20. Mm -hmm. I know you and your talents. That may be the wrong message if someone is inefficient or if someone has hit some hurdles in their practice or they've stalled and they're not sure where to go next. Remember, they've built a business that's now come along with them. And most advisors keep what they've built the whole way through. So at some point there becomes a crossroads or a reckoning to say, all right, I may need to make some changes. I'm inefficient. I would like to grow, but my water level's up to here and I'm not interested in anybody jumping in the water, right? Yeah. So scale is about getting more return on investment, more importantly, return on equity and effort. So ROE from what you're already doing. Typically, the culprits are time and the cost to service your business. And I don't mean just green dollars and money. I mean, the effort, the time. Think about it with your portfolio management divisions, your advanced markets divisions, driving back and forth if you're still seeing clients in their home all of the analysis that has to be done to prepare for a review while you're onboarding new clients, while you're trying to appreciate the clients and deal with all the incoming that comes along with that. So it's not with growth, which is about let's do more marketing, right? Let's get you another assistant or other random strategies that when you try to layer that on top of a business that might be inefficient or the advisor saying, look, I'm working hard as it is. I, to even think about growing right now, I just want to get better at what I'm doing. That's scale. If you take an inefficient advisor and try to bring more growth topics on there, hey, we think you can grow 20%. 
it's going to put downward pressure and it's just avoiding the inefficiencies that might be lurking behind their surface. Yeah, you're putting the spotlight on what's working and what can they do with what they already have in place. And who are the advisors that need this type of help? So as I mentioned, any advisor probably wants to get better at what they're doing, but there's going to be a time with an experienced advisor where they've been doing what they've been doing for so long, and now there seems to be a stall. Usually I like to call this as capacity walls, Mm-hmm. And this is going to be dependent based on their business model. There's many different business models, right? There's an insurance-based practice. There's a blended planning practice. There's recurring revenue practices. There's investment management. And maybe you're someone who's been working with young families and a lot of volume of young families with insurance planning versus someone who might have a smaller book of business, but it's very complex and it's very highly planning-centric. So we, it's a lot more time with each individual client. Those capacity walls are typically going to take place in a few forms based on your business model. If it's an insurance advisor, maybe it's when they hit around 100 clients, or if they've got a very affluent clientele or executive comp planning, it might be 40 clients for them. From a GDC standpoint, I usually see the first hurdle around 150,000, and then they have difficulty getting past that. If they do, then it's 250 GDC, 450, 750 are the benchmarks I typically see. You're always going to hit growing pains. And with AUM, assets under management, it typically happens at the $100 million mark because at that point, they have clients that they're servicing. Now they have to be compliant with that practice. There's a lot more intense of seeing those clients on a regular basis because they're paying you for the assets under management. And then when they hit 250, 500, a billion. Again, those are the thresholds. What I would look for as a leader, because I know a lot of leaders will be watching this, look for the ones that seem like they've stagnated, that they're a phenomenal advisor, but maybe that rapid growth has started to tail off. And it's not because they're getting comfortable, could, but typically it's not. They typically are thirsty to keep growing and doing more. So they seem stressed about it or their onboarding seems to have slowed down, or they've seemed to be struggling with paperwork or any workflows digitally around onboarding or so forth. That's what I would be looking for. And at that point, the advisor is looking for an empathetic support and help, not the, you should grow 20%. (laughs) Yeah, I love two things. One, how you're just not saying, oh, if you have 300 clients, then you you need to break it into this or 500. You're actually going by business model, by the different ways that they are serving the clients, whether it's specialties in certain areas or bringing AUM and insurance together, et cetera. Um, and I also appreciate that you're saying, pay attention to the mood and the behaviors to find out before they have to come to you and ask. So what is step one when approaching an experienced advisor and getting them interested in scaling their practice? Great question. And remember, some of these advisors may not be solo by themselves. Many may already have staff and they're still faced with these inefficiencies. Mm -hmm. So step one, regardless of their business model, because you might have advisors that have been in the business 15 years and have 500 clients. They started with basic insurance planning as, as they got new licenses and skills. Then they started to add on. At that point, there are so many advisors that still have not segmented their clientele. And for the sake of simplicity, A, B, and C clients, right? 
but you can call them platinum, gold, silver, you know, triple A, double AA, whatever you want to call it. But that needs to be looked at regularly. That's step one. But then step two, this is very, very crucial. I would household that advisor's book of business. When I say I would household it as a leader, the advisor's already strapped for time. And we all know that in some of the institutions and financial companies that we work with, there may be old legacy insurance systems that to pull data from these old systems, or we might be pulling from other third-party software. They may need some help to household their book of business. And I would household it and then sort it by decreasing order of revenue. Because at that point, then we can start to see some medians of where the time I'm spending, the expenses that I'm spending with this household and the revenues aren't quite matching. If I've properly segmented it, then I also want to go for each household and I would sit with them if they don't have time to do it themselves. And I would have their staff sit in on this meeting as well and say, how many hours on average per year are we spending with each household? And people would logically say, well, the A clients are more. That's not always the case. You right. might have some B clients, C clients. <clears throat> I like to call this the hope, okay? <laughs> we all have some advisors that they're working with, say, a, a medical resident, that they know at some point perhaps they'll be in a higher salary model, or it's a young family, but they're in executive positions. We know at some point they're going to have higher net worth. So we're going to give them everything that we can so that we don't lose them. But the revenue that's coming in, this might be a 5, 10, 15-year wait. So hoping that they'll do something is great, but hope is not a plan. They would be very happy with our attention, but perhaps a more effective service model than giving them the family office type service model or that Ritz-Carlton experience. If we're giving clients more than they need or desire more frequently than they need it, we're going to have a problem. So maybe we have a client that's giving us a thousand on average of revenue every year, but it's actually in time and effort costing us 5,000, 7,500, we're underwater. And I see this even with the A clients. We'll just take an AUM advisor for a minute. Let's say million dollars, ballpark 1%, all right, $10,000. Well, what if we're spending 25 hours a year with that household, knowing that there's gonna be future retirement estate planning, but it's costing us 15,000 a year just to keep that client serviced because we're trying to compete. The advisor's not doing it just because they want to work more. They're trying to compete and give them more service and value from all the other firms that might be out there. But that could be harming them. And the client may be more happy with, say, a foundational planning model. And I'll get this for this foundational planning model with the private client type models at the true higher levels. So that's the first step is we've got to get underneath this book of business and look for any hidden data that we might not be seeing. It's so That's going to be that, very telling. Yeah. I think it's so smart because seeing the, what each client is generating in terms of revenue for the advisor will help them. And it's a more of a thinking than emotional, but you can blend them together by designing okay, maybe this person is not as profitable. How do I design something that will the client will still love and feel taken care of? And it makes sense. 
And if I could say, there's several strategies. This is what I like to call right-sizing the business. But first, right. we have to look at the business first. Yes, It doesn't always mean get rid of your small clients. That, that's what advisors are afraid of. Now, when they do this household analysis, they may say, these clients are not working. They're actually abusive to my staff. They are inept at moving to online portals where they could be doing some things that most of my clients are doing. Maybe that's something that I would be okay. There's 15 or 20 clients. So that's one thing. Looking at the service models that we are giving them, we probably gave them private client service in the early stages because they were our first clients, but we never really adapted anything. And we could tell them that my practice has progressed I knew if you're a recurring revenue, maybe more of a fee model for planning, or maybe you're just charging more for certain services that you have. And you could blame it on the company. My firm has asked me now to focus on a clientele at this level. So it'd be inappropriate to layer those fees onto you. But I've personally chosen an advisor that can work with you, or we put them on a different service model, or we have a different conversation with that client about how they want to progress moving forward. We might be giving them 12 touch points a year. They might only need six and want six. Yeah. And I want to underscore what Tiffany you're saying is communicate, 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 let people know starting internally with your team. And then especially the clients as you go through some sort of transition like this, do you want to say anything more about right sizing? I do. Right sizing is getting your book of business to the right manageable capacity that you are are profitable for the effort that you are putting in. And yes, profits and so forth, clients or people, they are, but the advisor has to make a good living and has to feel that for all the value that I'm putting out, the value of my time is actually being compensated for. And it's not just the advisor, the staff is feeling this too. You might have an advisor that says, well, they don't really ask much of me. They don't call in that much. Is, is that really the bar? And the staff might say, they're calling me all the time. So I can't get to some of these other things that you've asked. There are some advisors in some of the larger banks and wirehouses that have stopped onboarding as many as they were to keep pace. That's not a good situation. No, no. All right. So what is the strategy once they are clear about their service model and have right-sized their practice? A lot of people say, how do I get my advisors interested in scaling their practice, right? And that's not really the question that needs to be answered. It's about, we have to recognize when our advisor needs some help. So at that point, looking at the business, at that point, then we can say, all right, this advisor needs to up the type of client that they're working with. Maybe their minimum was 500,000 or less. They really should be looking at 750, a million moving forward. The question is not dump what we had. The question is, will our next 20, 30 or 40 clients be more profitable than the ones that we brought on? But what if the advisor has been comfortable at that level? So yes, they have to move up if they don't wanna change the service model and the value that they have. That may require some target marketing, some niche marketing, some other skills. So maybe they're afraid to make some changes until they get that first new client at an up market. That's fine. We've recognized the problem. When the first next client at that A plus level comes in, then we deal with some clients at the lower level. So we can do this in a gradual, gentle way. And what are the biggest obstacles to advisors executing and following through? And how can firm leaders help? 
Yeah. So most advisors want to get more from what they're already doing, right? And at the same time, they might not even know what they're doing wrong. So you asked that question about what are some of the next things to think about? What if that advisor, with all the changes that has happened in the marketplace, every new prospect that they're meeting at a higher level, they're trying to showcase their whole value with jargon. Mm. Maybe they're talking about their fiduciary, their fee-only models, their wealth management, their wealth distribution. I don't know about you, but if you're trying to work in the $1 to $4 million space, those clients don't think they're wealthy. And yet here we are describing the sophisticated wealth process. The client might actually say, this sounds like very expensive or we're really not that type of fit. They might be deselecting themselves out. So the advisor is thinking, I'm doing a great job. I, I shared all of my value. And the client, on the other hand, is thinking this might not be a right fit. It's not relatable. So there could be some things going on. So what leaders can do is actually sit and be the mock client for them share with me what you're saying. Are you speaking to me personally or are you putting out all this jargon hoping that it will describe some value? So that's the first thing that we have to figure out is what might be holding advisors back? It might not be realizing, one, some of the things that we're doing aren't getting the ROE from what we're putting in. But, but there's so, another problem. Tiffany, oh, go ahead, please. It's so easy for people to fall into the jargon and the majority of the population are terrified about conversations regarding money, even at the highest levels, speak to their hearts and where they are versus showing how expert you are in knowing three syllable words that they probably don't understand and are translating, which puts them on their heels and doesn't connect you to them and has them disqualify themselves. That's right. Here's here's another example of throwing a growth strategy at something when they really need support with scale. If we've recognized that this advisor might be losing opportunities to engage a prospect or client during the planning process, many will say, let's try some lead generation programs. Let's spend $500 a lead and see if it works for you. What are we doing? Then we're going to send them a uh, thousand 1500 word email with all the jargon about why you should work with us we're looking forward to meeting with you right so then we waste that money i'm not saying that lead programs aren't bad i'm saying if you don't know how to get it to 125 words and get to the point of the outcomes you solve then that's a problem so we've addressed that what if it's the stuff that they don't already know that's one of the obstacles that you mentioned but here's another one we finally give them the opportunity to sit and recognize and we're gonna help them with their book. When it's time to start making some changes, the advisor might be complacent, say, no, you know, these are good people, or I don't know, maybe, yeah, but I'm not into, you know, this. Um, I haven't worked with $2 million. Well, we can help you with marketing. The complacency might sit in and that causes them to stall. I also like to call it scarcity marketing. Well, I yeah, I recognize these problems, but I'm really not willing to invest in that or so forth. Um, I don't want to give anything away, even though it's not profitable and we're losing money with all the time that we're spending. So those are issues. Complacency, scarcity, and the things that we just don't know. For leaders, we may be part of the problem as well as the solution. If we've never gone through this process before with an advisor on how to scale or how to look at their household or diagnose what's actually happening with a good advisor, 
because we just say a good advisor, you know, let's just help them stay out of their way, stay in touch. What do they need? They may need this empathetic type of help. But if we've never done it before, then how do we really consult? And that's where the best thing you can do is bring in some outside help. Someone that's worked with advisors in this capacity. Do it with one, ride alongside them together through the exercises. You learn how to do it as a leader. You now become invaluable and you can help all of your advisors as well as have conversations with other advisors that may not be getting this where they are. Yes, that's a great point because you're talking business strategy and that's an entire other skill set versus the endless skill sets leaders in our industry have. I mean, these are the most educated, most skilled, most people talented, most devoted, most caring leaders in, in any industry. Um, all right. So on that note, you can see I'm a fan. <laughs> <laughs> Once the advisor's scaling strategy is clear and a plan's in place, what are some signs that it's time to consider adding an admin or joint work partner versus a protege or a high-end expert advisor to the team? That's such a great question. I'm going to add also acquiring a practice right to that mix. We all try to throw these things out about growth strategies. Hey, you could do this. Hey, you could do this. What about this? We'll help you get an assistant. If there are inefficiencies lurking, we could actually exacerbate the problem and exacerbate the revenue issues. So what are the signs? Well, if in that household analysis that we've identified a very large block of clientele that maybe are quiet, maybe we're giving four, five, six, seven hours a year, but to properly work with that client, there's probably someone who would treat them like an A. So at that point, it's do we right size and then give more capacity to that advisor or staff to elevate the experience for those that might be higher caliber clients for the skills that we have now. So that's one thing. Two, in that household analysis, we might have identified pockets of clients where there's significant opportunity. Maybe there's some corporations. Maybe, as we all know, the medical market is under a lot of water right now. There's a lot of doctors suffering because they're not sure if they can even retire and they would love to up their retirement age because of just the environment that they're in, but they don't know if they can. Maybe this advisor has some significant medical clients who if they spent some time, they could actually turn that into an opportunity to serve more, but they're not thinking that way because they're underwater. Yeah. So looking at that household is gonna give you some of the initial clues. If that advisor wants to keep the model that they have, but they want to focus more at a higher level on skills, they might say, I'm ready to bring in a junior associate, but this is the profile that I need. And maybe even start them at a salary as opposed to sales split. There's many different ways to work that. But the advisor will be more comfortable when they see their data and they see the things that are finally glaring at them. They're like, wow. No wonder I'm underwater. It's costing me $15,000 a year and I'm only making $10,000 and I'm, I'm happy to have it, but this is not sustainable for me. I'm already working 70, 80 hours a week and my staff is like ready to pull their hair out. So that's the first step. And then the second step, I just want to say this to leaders. It's not about making suggestions. It's about making informed suggestions. So like I said, role play with that advisor during a initial discovery meeting. Look at the emails that they're sending out 
as a follow-up to a prospect that maybe has stalled for a bit? Are they using the right words that are going to create curiosity or are they just trying to convince people to work with me with what they're saying? Yeah, that's terrific, terrific advice. Tiffany, thank you so much for generously sharing detailed strategies for leaders who want to guide and empower their experienced advisors to scale their practices. And thank you so much for the opportunity. And in closing, I just want to say leaders have the right to try and work with their advisors to generate more. Okay. They're especially in an environment where it's an OSJ. They're providing the walls to work in, the compliance, the operations in many cases, or at least very least the support. The advisor, on the other hand, is also paying for some things too, and they're the ones facing the clients every day. And they're the ones that if you worry about clients not being serviced, they're more worried about clients being serviced. That, that's just the nature of who they are. So I don't want to discount either side, but this is the way to come together in an empathetic approach that solves everyone, creates that scale. And then you create that scale. The leaders now have the skills to deliver this to more advisors. I love it. For leaders watching who want to target ways to scale during your planning sessions, if you're curious about where to start, have your teams, including you, take our profitable scaling strategies quiz. It's based on what the top 1% of teams are doing today to significantly outperform their peers. You'll get immediate results and see exactly where to target efforts to improve the performance within all your teams, whether leadership or sales teams. Click the button below this video, take the Profitable Scaling Strategies quiz. You'll be able to compare your scores with your teams to help you focus on what will give you the biggest ROI slash ROE <laughs> and move you forward quickly into the coming year. So to subscribe to more podcasts like this, visit macaulayandco.com forward slash podcast and sign up. And if you want to learn more about Advanced Marketing and Tiffany Markarian, go to advancedmarketing.com. Check out her blog. It has terrific resources, including on today's topic. Tiffany, I know our audience has received high value from our time together today. So appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for that. Great to collaborate. And again, we do this for you. Kelly, I know this is your dedication. It's my dedication. So anything that we can do to improve the lives of our firms, our advisors, ultimately lands to the client. And that's what we're here for. We're here for you. Until next time, keep leading yourself and your teams to higher levels of success in all areas of your lives.